chapters seventeen and eighteen of the pawn's count by e phillips oppenheim this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by tom weiss chapter seventeen pamela sat that afternoon on the balcony of the country club at baltistral and approved of her surroundings below her stretched a pleasant vista of rolling greensward dotted here and there with the figures of the golfers beyond the misty blue background of rising hills i can't tell you how peaceful this all seems jimmy she said to her brother who had brought her out in his automobile one doesn't notice the air of strain over on the continent because it's all the same everywhere but it gets a little on one's nerves all the same i positively love it here it's fine to have you was the hearty response gee that fellow coming to the sixteenth hole can play some Pamela directed her attention idly towards the figure which her brother indicated, a man in light tweeds who played with an easy and graceful swing, and with the air of one to whom the game presented no difficulties whatever. She watched him drive for the seventeenth, a long raking ball fully fifty yards further than his opponent's, watched him play a perfect mashy shot to the green, and hold out in three. "'A birdie,' James Van Tail murmured. "'I say, Pamela!' she took no notice her eyes were still following the figure of the golfer she watched him drive at the last hole play a chip shot onto the green and hit the hole for a three the frown deepened upon her forehead she was looking very uncompromising when the two men ascended the steps i didn't know mr lutchester that there were any factories down this way she remarked severely as he paused before her in surprise for a single moment she fancied that she saw a flash of annoyance in his eyes it was gone so swiftly however that she remained uncertain he held out his hand laughing fairly caught out miss van tail he confessed you see i was tempted and i fell his companion an elderly clean-shaven man passed on pamela glanced after him who is your opponent she asked just someone i picked up on the tee lutchester explained how is our friend fisher this morning i walked with him for an hour in the park pamela replied he seemed quite cheerful i have scarcely thanked you yet for returning the pocket-book have i his face was inscrutable couldn't keep a thing that didn't belong to me could i he observed you have a marvellous gift for discovering lost property she murmured for discovering the owners you mean he retorted with a little bow you're some golfer i see mr lutchester van tail interposed i was on my game to-day lutchester admitted with a little luck at the seventh he continued earnestly i might have tied the amateur record you see my ball but there i mustn't bore you now i must look after my opponent and stand him a drink we shall meet again i dare say lutchester passed on and pamela glanced up at her brother is he a sphinx or a fool she whispered don't ask me van tail replied seems to me you were a bit rough on him anyway i don't see why the fellow shouldn't have a day's holiday before he gets to work if i had his swing it would interfere with my career i know that well enough did you recognize the man with whom he was playing pamela inquired can't say that i did his face seems familiar though go and see if you can find out his name pamela begged it isn't ordinary curiosity i really want to know that's easy enough van tail replied rising from his place and i'll order tea at the same time 
Pamela leaned a little further back in her chair. Her eyes seemed to be fixed upon the pleasant prospect of wooded slopes and green, upward-stretching sward. As a matter of fact, she saw only two faces, Fisher's and Lutchester's. Her chief impulse in life for the immediate present seemed to have resolved itself into a fierce, almost a passionate curiosity. It was the riddle of those two brains which she was so anxious to solve. Fisher, the cold, subtle intriguer, with schemes at the back of his mind which she knew quite well that, even in the moment of his weakness, he intended to keep to himself. And Lutchester, with his almost cynical devotion to pleasure, yet with his unaccountable habit of suggesting a strength and qualities to which he neither laid nor established any claim. Of the two men it was Lutchester who piqued her, with whom she would have found more pleasure in the battle of wits. She found herself alternately furious and puzzled with him, yet her uneasiness concerning him possessed more disquieting, more fascinating possibilities than any of the emotions inspired by the other man. Van Tail returned to her presently, a little impressed. "'Thought I knew that chap's face,' he observed. "'It's Eli Hamblin, Senator Hamblin, you know.' "'A friend and confidant of the President,' she murmured. "'A Westerner, too.' I wonder what he's doing here. Jimmy! Hello, sis. You've just got to be a dear, Pamela begged. Go to the caddy master or professional or someone and find out whether Mr. Lutchester met him here by accident or whether they arrived together. You'll turn me into a regular sleuth-hound, he laughed. However, here goes. He strolled off again, and Pamela found herself forced to become mundane and frivolous while she chatted with some newly arrived acquaintances. It was not until some little time after her brother's return that she found herself alone with him. Well? she asked eagerly. They arrived within a few minutes of one another, Van Tail announced. Senator Hamblin bought a couple of new balls and made some inquiries about the course, but said nothing about playing. Lutchester, who appears not to have known him, came up later and asked him if he'd like a game. That's all I could find out. Pamela pointed to a little cloud of dust in the distance. And there they go, she observed, together. Van Tail threw himself into a chair and accepted the cup of tea which his sister handed him. Well, he inquired, what do you make of it? There's more in that question than you think, James, Pamela replied. All the same, I think I shall be able to answer it in a few days. Another little crowd of acquaintances discovered them, and Pamela was soon surrounded by a fresh group of admirers. They all went out presently to inspect the new tennis courts. Pamela and her brother were beset with invitations. "'You positively must stay down and dine with us and go home by moonlight,' Mrs. Saunders, a lively young matron with a large country house close by, insisted. "'Jimmy's neglected me terribly these last few months. And as for you, Pamela, I haven't seen you in a year.' "'I'd love to if we can,' Pamela assured her. "'But Jimmy will have to telephone first. "'Then do be quick about it,' Mrs. Saunders begged. "'It doesn't matter a bit about clothes. We've twenty people staying in the house now, and half of us won't change, if that makes you more comfortable. Jimmy, if you fail at that telephone, I'll never forgive you.' But Van Tail, who had caught the little motion of his sister's head towards the city, proved equal to the occasion. He returned presently, driving the car. "'Got to go,' he announced as he made his farewells. "'Can't be helped, Pamela.' "'Frightfully sorry, Mrs. Saunders. We are wanted up in New York.' Pamela sighed. "'I was so afraid of it,' 
she regretted as she waved her adieu. An hour or so later the city broke before them in murky waves. Pamela, who had been leaning back in the car, deep in thought, sat up. "'You are a perfect dear, James,' she said. "'Do you think you could stand having Mr. Fisher to dinner one evening this week?' "'Sure,' he replied a little curiously. "'If you want to keep friends with him for any reason, I don't bear him any ill will.' "'I just want to talk to him,' Pamela murmured. "'That's all.'" End of chapter 17 Chapter 18 there was a ripple of interest and a good deal of curiosity that afternoon in the lounge and entrance hall of the Hotel Plaza, when a tall, grey-moustached gentleman of military bearing descended from the automobile which had brought him from the station, and handed in his name at the desk, inquiring for Mr. Fisher. "'Will you send my name up, the Baron von Schwerin?' he directed. The clerk, who had recognized the newcomer, took him under his personal care. "'Mr. Fisher is up in his rooms expecting you, Baron,' he announced. If you'll come this way, I'll take you up. The baron followed his guide to the lift and along the corridor to the suite of rooms occupied by Mr. Fisher and his young friend James Van Tail. Mr. Fisher himself opened the door. The two men clasped hands cordially, and the clerk discreetly withdrew. "'Back with us once more, Fisher,' von Schwerin exclaimed fervently. "'You are wonderful. Tell me,' he added, looking around, "'we are to be alone here?' "'Absolutely,' Fisher replied. "'The young man I share these apartments with, James Van Tail, has taken his sister out to Baltistral. They will not be back until seven o'clock. We are sure of solitude.' "'Good,' von Schwerin exclaimed. "'And you have news. I can see it in your face.' Fisher rolled up easy-chairs and procured a box of cigars. "'Yes,' he assented, with a little glitter in his eyes. "'I have news. Things have moved with me.' I think that, with the help of an idiotic Englishman, we shall solve the riddle of what our professors have called the consuming explosive. I sent the formula home to Germany by a trusty hand only a few hours ago. Capital, von Schwerin declared. It was arranged in London, that. Partly in London and partly here, Fischer replied. Von Schwerin made a grimace. If one can find those who are willing to help you here, you are fortunate indeed, he sighed. My life's work has lain amongst these people. In the days of peace all seemed favorable to us. Since the war even those people whom I thought my friends seemed to have lost their heads, to have lost their reasoning powers. Above all, Fisher muttered, it is race calling to race. But come, we have more direct business on hand. Nicastia's here. Von Schwerin nodded a little gloomily. Washington knows nothing of his coming, he observed. I attended the Baron Jung's reception last week, informally. I threw out very broad hints, but Jung would not be drawn. Nikosti represents the Secret Service of Japan unofficially and without responsibility. Nevertheless, Fisher pointed out, what he says will reach the ear of his country, and reach it quickly. You've gone through the papers I sent you? Carefully, von Schwerin replied. And the autograph letter? That I have, Fisher announced. I will fetch Nikosti. He crossed the room and opened the door, leading into the bedchambers. "'Are you there, Cato?' he cried. "'I am coming, sir,' was the instant reply. Nikosti appeared a few moments later. He was carrying a dress coat on his arm, and he held a clothes-brush in his hand. It was obvious that he had studied with nice care the details of his new part. "'You can sit down, Nikosti,' Fischer invited. "'This is the Baron von Schwerin.' 
he has something to say to you. Nikosti bowed very low. He declined the chair, however, to which Fisher pointed. I am your valet and the valet of Mr. Van Tail, he murmured. It is not fitting for me to be seated. I listen. Von Schwerin drew his chair a little nearer. I plunge at once, he said, into the middle of things. There is always the fear that we may be disturbed. Nikosti inclined his head. It is best, he agreed. You are aware, von Schwerin continued, that the imperial government of Germany has already made formal overtures through a third party to the Emperor of Japan with reference to an alteration in our relations. There was talk of this in Tokyo, Nikosti observed softly. Japan, however, is under obligations, treaty obligations. Her honor demands that these should be kept. The honor of a country, Baron von Schwerin acknowledged, is without a doubt a sacred charge upon her rulers, but above all things in heaven or on earth the interests of her people must be their first consideration. If a time should come when the two might seem to clash, then it is the task of the statesman to recognize this fact. Nikosti bowed. It is spoken, he confessed, like a great man. Your country, von Scheren continued, is at war with mine because it seemed to her rulers that her interests lay with the Allies rather than with Germany. I will admit that my country was at fault. We did not recognize to its full extent the value of friendship with Japan. We did not bid high enough for your favors. Asia concerned us very little. We looked upon the destruction of our interests there in the same spirit as that with which we contemplated the loss of our colonies. All that might happen would be temporary. Our influence in Asia, our colonies, will remain with us or perish, according to the result of the war in Europe. But our statesmen overlooked one thing. Our factories, Nikosti murmured. Precisely. We have had our agents all over the world for years. Some are good, a few are easily deceived. There is no country in the world where apparently so much liberty is granted to foreigners as in Japan. There is no country where the capacity for manufacture and output has been so grossly underestimated by our agents as yours. Nikosti smiled. I had something to do with that, he announced. It was Carl Newman, was it not, on whom you relied? I supplied him with much information. Von Schwerin's face clouded for a moment. You mean that you fooled him, I suppose, he said. Well, it is all part of the game. That is over now. We want your exports to Russia stopped. Ah, Nikosti murmured reflectively stopped. We ask no favors, von Schwerin continued. The issue of the war is written across the face of the skies for those who care to read. Nikosti looked downward at the dress coat which he was carrying. Then he glanced up at von Schwerin. Perhaps our eyes have been dazzled, he said. Will you not interpret? The end of the war will be a piece of exhaustion, von Schwerin explained. Our loftier dreams of conquest we must abandon. Germany has played her part, but Austria, alas, has failed. Peace will leave us all very much where we were. Very well, then, I ask you, what has Japan gained? You answer, China. I deny it. Yet even if it were true, it would take you five hundred years to make a great country of China. Suppose for a moment you had been on the other side. What about Australia, New Zealand? Are those things under present consideration? Nikosti queried. Why not? von Schwerin replied. Listen, close your exports to Russia within the next thirty days. Build up for yourselves a stock of ammunition, 
add to your fleet and prepare. Within a year of the cessation of war there is no reason why your national dream should not be realized. Your fleet may sail for San Francisco. The German fleet shall make a simultaneous attack upon the eastern coast of Massachusetts and New York. The German fleet, Nikosti repeated. And England? Von Schwerin's eyes flashed for a moment. If the English fleet is still in being, he declared, it will be a crippled and defeated fleet. But for the sake of your point of view, I will assume that it exists. Even then there will be nothing to prevent the German fleet from steaming in what waters it pleases. If our shells fall upon New York on the day when your warships are sighted off the California coast, do you suppose that America could resist? With her seaboard her fleet is contemptible. From her wealth her army is a farce. She has neglected for a great many years to pay her national insurance. She is the one country in the world who can be bled for the price of empires. Fisher, who had been smoking furiously, spat out the end of a fresh cigar. It will be a just retribution, he interposed with smothered fierceness. Under the guise of neutrality, America has been responsible for the lives of hundreds of thousands of my countrymen. That we never can, we never shall forget. The wealth which makes these people fat is blood money, and Germany will take her vengeance. For whom do you speak? Nikosti inquired. Von Schwerin rose from his place. For the greatest of all. Do I take anything but words to Tokyo? The Japanese asked softly. Fisher unfolded a pocketbook and drew from it a parchment envelope. You take this letter, he said, which I brought over myself from Berlin, signed and written not more than three weeks ago. I ask you to believe in no vague promises. I bring you the pledged faith of the greatest ruler on earth. What do you say, Nikosti? Will you accept our mission? Will you go back to Tokyo and see the Emperor? Nikasi bowed. I will go back, he promised. I will sail as soon as I can make arrangements. But I cannot tell you what the issue may be. We Japanese are not a self-seeking nation. Above and higher than all things are our ideals and our honor. I cannot tell what answer our sovereign may give to this. These are the days when the truest patriotism demands the most sublime sacrifices, von Schwerin declared. Above all the ethics of individuals comes the supreme necessity of self-preservation. The Japanese smiled slightly. Ah, he said, there speaks the philosophy of your country, Baron, the paean of materialism. The destinies of nations, Baron von Schwerin exclaimed, are above the man-made laws of a sentimental religion. One needs nowadays more than to survive. It is necessary to flourish. Nikosti stood suddenly to attention. It is Miss Van Tail who returns, he warned them. He glided from the room, shaking out a little the dress coat which he had been carrying. The two men looked after him. Fisher threw his cigar savagely away and lit another. Curse these Orientals, he muttered. They listen and listen, and one never knows. Van Tail won't be here for hours. That was just an excuse to get away. But there was a smile of triumph on von Schwerin's lips. I know them better than you do, Fisher, he declared. Nikosti is our man. End of chapter 18. Recording by Tom Weiss. Tom's Audiobooks.com.